You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT, our third edition. <laughs> I love that we have editions. You can still count at the beginning, so when we get up to 372, we'll, <laughs> I think we might, might give up this counting game. But right now, yes, it's our third edition of Radio MMT. I wonder if Larry or Larissa are counting with us. Well, they don't have to. We can, we can do it for them for the time being. Okay. Um, what have we got coming up on the show this week, Anne? We are talking with none other than MMT advocate Stephen Grumbine. Stephen Grumbine, who is of the real progressives over in the States, yeah? Yes. But, of course, before we get into Steve Grumbine, we're going to have a, a letter from the Cape. By Bill Mitchell. Excellent. So, Bill first, and then we'll head into Steve Grumbine. It's time for a letter from the Cape. With economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Hello, I'm back with another letter from the Cape. The federal election in October 1961 saw the Menzies Liberal government scrape back into office by 130 votes, courtesy of Jim Killen's win in the inner Brisbane seat of Morton. The irony was that the government, which conceded 15 seats to the Labor Party in that election, was returned to power on the back of Communist Party preferences. Irony, because Killen was not only associated with the League of Rights, a rather nasty right-wing anti-Semitic group, but he was also pro-apartheid and opposed to the struggle against white rule in what became Zimbabwe. He was also vehemently anti-communist. So what was that all about? The prosecution of the Second World War taught governments that fiscal policy initiatives spending and taxation, could generate enough spending to ensure that there were enough jobs available for all who wanted to work. The military spending in the late 1930s is what ended the decade-long Great Depression, and the challenge after the war was how to maintain full employment when nations were no longer pounding each other into oblivion. The grand statements that came in the early years of the peace In Australia, it was the white paper on full employment, saw governments pledging to use their fiscal capacities to build public infrastructure, widen and deepen the public services, run large enterprises that provided essential services, electricity, water, transport, telecommunications, postal and the like, all with the aim of nation building and sustaining work for all who wanted it measured unemployment during the next decade or more, 
never moved above 2% of the available labour, and that unemployment was considered frictional in the sense that it was just counting workers moving between jobs to new employers. The Menti's government nearly came unstuck in 1961 because after cutting spending and increasing taxes in the late 1950s, unemployment rose quickly and ultimately reached 3.2% in 1962. The fact that the unemployment rate breached the almost sacrosanct 2% barrier was considered totally unacceptable by the voters who interpreted that as a major failing of the federal government. The near rejection of the Menzies government demonstrated how embedded the collective will supporting full employment was in Australian society. We understood that our federal government could always ensure there were enough jobs available for all. We didn't classify the unemployed as dole bludgers, job snobs, cruisers or other nasty terms that are now in vogue. The societal consensus of the day was that unemployment above 2% arose because of a systemic failure to create enough jobs. There were differences as to how that aim would be made operational, direct public employment versus private sector stimulus, but everyone accepted that sustaining full employment was the responsibility of the federal government which had the currency purse. And the fact that unemployment was typically below 2% was not because the private sector provided sufficient work. The full employment was achieved and sustained during this period because the government stood to provide work on demand in a range of public activities. Transport, council work, railways, roads, infrastructure and the like. Anyone could get work. Those with low education and training, new arrivals without English skills, criminals just released from prison, those with mental disabilities. In other words, the type of person that we now considered to be unemployable and leave to rot in the unemployment queue and churn them through sociopathic case management while providing below poverty line income support. There were intergenerational advantages with this approach because children were not forced as they are now to grow up in jobless households and inherit their parents' disadvantage. I grew up in a poor household in the Housing Commission suburbs east of Melbourne. My father always had work even though he earned the minimum wage. We learned that work was an activity that generated self-esteem, social connection and self-reliance. What was patently obvious then, and remains so today, is that the Australian government, as the issuer of the currency we all use to purchase goods and services, is able to purchase whatever is for sale in that currency, including all idle labour, which means that mass unemployment and underemployment are political choices. It is not a complex problem. The government can always ensure there are enough jobs. The persistence of mass unemployment just means they don't want to. A few weeks ago, we saw that the unemployment rate was starting to rise again, and the Treasurer claimed it was all to do with the RBA pushing up interest rates. He claimed that the elected government could do little about it. 
you should now know he was lying to us. Uh, we have been expecting uh, an uptick in the unemployment rate as the economy slows a bit, as the obvious consequence uh, of a slowing global economy mixed with the impact of interest rate rises here in our own economy. Uh, so this is the expected outcome, the expected consequence uh, of global turbulence and rising interest rates playing out in our economy. And our current expectation, the expectation of the Treasury and the Reserve Bank, is that our economy will slow a bit more and unemployment will tick up a bit more uh, in the coming months. The Australian Government can always reduce unemployment if it wants to. There is never a valid reason for allowing unemployment to increase. Next time you run into a government MP, ask them why they are choosing to deliberately force people to be without work and income and in poverty. I'll be back next time. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au So that was Bill describing the era of full employment after the Second World War here in Australia. Yeah, and this is the thing to realise because this full employment uh, that we bang on about in MMT with a job guarantee, when you first hear about it, you sort of think, oh, that's all pretty far-fetched. How can the government just employ everybody? Mm-hmm. They already did it. We've done it. There's nothing too radical going on here. Uh, you know, there was real full employment after World War Two, where everybody who wanted a job had a job because the government would provide. Because they were doing so much spending on all that post-war reconstruction. Yeah, so all Bill's doing is tidying up something that's already happened. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we, we all thought he's very clever, but it's pinching a previous idea and making it a little bit better. He's just tweaking it, isn't he, with yeah. his job guarantee? Which is good to do, you know. But good on him because, like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, it's a good thing It's what we desperately need again. Yeah. So, um, on to our interview with Stephen. So... We're speaking to Steve Grumbine from Macro and Cheese, and he has a uh, a fairly strong following over in the States. He's probably one of the most known faces in the MMT world. Yeah, MMT is still relatively fresh, and it wasn't so long ago that only a handful of people knew about MMT. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to see that there are people across the world uh, en masse accepting or listening to... to um, it's not just you and me, Kevin. Not, we we, we <laughs> want to be like Steve Grumbine. So by all means, if you're out there and you're hearing us talk and you like the podcast we're doing, tell your friends it's important. But uh, let's listen to Steve Grumbine and see what he's got to say. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined by none other than Stephen Grumbine, who... I think of as the voice and face of an activist organisation in America called Real Progressives, which for me is the go-to place for people who've been bitten by the MMT bug. So, of course, MMT is the school of economics that Kevin and I follow. So, Steve, a warm welcome to our little corner of the MMT universe. Thank you so much. It's always nice to be able to talk about modern monetary theory, believe me. Well, you know, interviewing you is a bit like turning the camera on the camera operator (laughs) because, of course, I know you best as the host of an MMT podcast called Macro and Cheese, 
So we are, in a sense, following in those huge footsteps that you've put down, and we can but aspire. <laughs> and you are the founder of Real Progressives, so I imagine that the Real Progressives story is pretty much entwined in your own personal MMT origin story. Yes. Um, I think in the very, very beginning, um, my very beginning, which was right around 2009, 2010, when I started this journey, very, very small amount of people knew what this was. Very, very small amount of people were really talking about it. And as it grew a little bit more, and as Stephanie started coming into the mix, you saw a lot more activity on Facebook. And um, we were all kind of rallying around seven deadly innocent frauds. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, Randy Ray's primer at New Economic Perspectives was very important. Bill Mitchell's blog, Billy blog. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the deficit myth at that time to hang our hat on. Right. So everybody was kind of, I, I don't want to say in lockstep, but I would say we are a very, very tight, small community. I would say the beauty of that is that we all were a tight-knit community. The bad part about that is it was a little tiny echo chamber that only we knew of. Mm. You listen to Warren Mosler, he often jokes around how he would talk to uh, Matt Forstater in the early days back in the 90s and say, how many people are we up to? He's like, well, I think we got five now or something like that. You know, <laughs> It was very, very small and slow going. You know, here we are now, and you can see factions in the MMT community, which is good. It's important because, mm-hmm. you know, Republicans need to learn MMT. And so you could see the well to do capitalists amongst the MMT community. And then, right. you know, people like myself who are dirtbag leftists mm-hmm. are out there doing our stuff. I had to learn Marx <laughs> so I could explain MMT backwards, reverse engineer it. Right. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I interview academics and I talk at an academic level in those interviews. And I believe that the interviews are both accessible to lay people, but they're also good enough that maybe an academic might want to listen to it so they can hear what the lay people think too. Right. Mm-hmm. So bring us up to date on real progressives, what you're all up to these days. So, you know, like all organizations, we ebb and flow. Um, we started back in 2015. Actually, we had a little bit of early knowledge that Stephanie Kelton would be supporting Bernie Sanders. And so we created a group that was countering at that time what they called real Democrats. And real Democrats were the Hillary people. They wanted Hillary Clinton to win. And we were like, yeah, no. (laughs) So we started Real Progressives in support of Bernie Sanders. And really, because I wasn't even a big Bernie fan at the time, I was just a Stephanie fan. Mm. And I didn't come into this as a real progressive. In fact, ironically, I was very much a real libertarian (laughs) leaning into this. I I moved from Ron Paul to Bernie Sanders, if you can imagine. And for people that aren't American, Ron Paul is a not a great dude, <laughs> not a great guy at all, but he says some things that make you think, oh, maybe he's on my side. But anyway, we created Real Progressives as an answer to those stuck within the political corporate Democrat machine that tried to force us all to vote neoliberal, to force us to behave in a neoliberal fashion, to embrace the class hierarchy of privilege, et cetera. And, and we weren't having it. And so Real Progressives started out as kind of a joke a little bit of a punch back at real Democrats. But then we started realizing, wait a minute, maybe we got a chance here. Maybe, maybe there's more to this Bernie Sanders thing than we, than we know. Mm. And so we were there right as the wave was coming. We were the wave. And that helped us reach 
probably something like 35 million people back then a month. I mean, it was a lot of people. We were huge, way bigger than now. 35 million a month. 35. I just fell off my chair. (laughs) (laughs) Our largest month, I think it was 12 million people in one week, the week of the Democratic National Convention back in 2015. It was a very sad moment. Bernie Sanders conceded the nomination to Hillary Clinton, who then got beat by Donald Trump. And The rest is history. Yep. But anyway, Real Progressives uh, didn't start out only MMT, and we are still not only MMT. We focused on seven knowledge areas that we wanted to bring back to MMT because everybody in our movement talked about these seven knowledge areas, even they didn't call them knowledge areas. You know, it was like, we wanted to have economic justice. That was number one. We wanted to have environmental ecological justice. That was number two. Peace with justice. That's number three. Equality with justice. Number four. Um, Then we had democracy and then we had health and well-being, and then we had technology and innovation. So those seven knowledge areas all pointed back to modern monetary theory. We wanted to show folks how all their concerns could be addressed by understanding public money because MMT is a relatively stupid thing to just focus on if you're not tying it to something that matters to you, right? Right. Most people are not going to be an economist. Mm -hmm. Most people are not going to care about reserve accounting. (laughs) They're just not going (laughs) to care about tallying you know, okay, we spent a dollar. Now we had to add a dollar in reserves. We had to sell a bond. Nobody, there's not many people that really care about those operational details Mm. until you tell them without understanding that you can't debunk the lies that are being told to you, why you can't have healthcare, why you can't have Mm -hmm. these things. And, and that's kind of been our, our take since. So Steve was mentioning there a few people who are the economists who have been talking about modern monetary theory. So he mentioned Stephanie Kelton, who is one of the high profile people due to her book called The Deficit Myth. The Deficit Myth, yeah. Which was a New York Times bestseller. And so she was um, strongly supportive of the Bernie Sanders presidential nomination which ran against Hillary Clinton and that Donald Trump eventually won. Imagine if it was one of those moments in history and imagine if Bernie Sanders had won the presidency. What a fork in the road. What a different world (laughs) it would be. But that was a good shot in the arm to the whole MMT movement because we had uh, someone advising a potential president of the United States. On how his money actually works. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then Stephen also mentioned Warren Mosler and Randall Ray, who along with Bill Mitchell were the co-founders of Modern Monetary Theory. So Warren Mosler wrote a book called The Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds and Randall Ray had a website at New Economic Perspectives. That was a free book, that Seven Deadly Frauds. I'll put a link to it. Yeah, I think you can grab it. I'm yet to read it, which is a bit slack. I'll I'll get around to it. (laughs) I thought it was very ironic that Steve Grumbine talked about going from being a libertarian to a progressive activist. And he went from Ron Paul to Bernie Sanders. And around here, that would be like going from Clive Palmer to Adam Bant. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good on him because he's, he's a person of strong conviction. So if somebody to basically do a 180 on a lot of the things they thought about mm. is not an easy thing to do. So in this next segment, Kevin, you are about to tell a story about certain politicians who believe federal taxes fund federal government spending. So politicians aren't lying when they're spreading this misinformation. They actually believe what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They believe the orthodox economics. It's fundamentally wrong. 
but they believe it and therefore they push it and, and they don't understand the opportunities that they have to make real change. Right. So we would say that federal taxes are not funding their spending. And that's because the federal government is unique in that it is creating the dollars. It does not need to tax in order to get Australian dollars. But anyway, let's have a listen to our conversation with Stephen Grumbine. Why do civic organisations and lay people need to take on this educative role? Why can't we just leave it to the schools and the universities to tell us how the economy is working? Well, you know, you don't have to go back very far to the times where lay people weren't allowed to read the Bible and the priesthood was able to craft any fiction it wanted to and Uh predated on its parishioners. And so I consider us to be a bit of the Martin Luther's 99 Theses of sorts explaining to people where the dividing line between reality is and what the actual limits are. And we've, we've basically allowed neoclassical economics to consolidate our brains to the size of a pea in terms of the amount <laughs> of possibilities we can consider. We are literally facing a 360 degree battle, but we've only been given two degrees of visibility. And as a result of that, we have very, very incorrect analysis. We have poor analysis of power dynamics, poor analysis of class, poor analysis of understandings of what private property is, Uh, you know, things like getting into the MMT side, currency issuers and currency users and uh, fixed or float exchange regimes. Um, There's so many things that just typically don't seem like they would matter to a lay person mm. until somebody tries to tell you, well, the country's going broke. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. Or where's the money going to come from, Steve? <laughs> and so you, you're trying to figure out how to reach people to make them understand that there's a full, you know, 358 degrees that they've missed mm. because they've been lied to for their entire lives. And it's malevolent. See, this is one of the challenges as you get deeper into the rabbit hole. Mm. I mean, if you go back in time, go back to even FDR and World War II, Americans got to see their government literally lift the lid off the gold standard and open up the full power of a fiat currency for the war machine. Mm. For the war machine, you got to see a Marshall Plan that literally rallied the troops and rallied the people, and they sold war bonds to stifle purchases so that people would be just you know, focused on the war and they wouldn't create inflation by buying things that there just wasn't enough product to buy, you know, putting pressures on production that needed to go toward the war effort. Mm-hmm. They knew this stuff back in the days. So they have convoluted it much like you know, it's like anything that you can complicate, you can confuse the average person on, and then you can have your way with them. This this relationship between a belief and, and outright lying. So we, we quite often hear that politicians or the economists are lying to us. I went to a uh, an ALP fundraiser a while ago, and uh, our Attorney General, a fellow called Mark Dreyfus, stood up, hand on heart, saying, he was proud to pay his taxes because his taxes paid for all the services they provide. Now, I know Mark, and I know that he thinks that he was telling the truth. Now, here we have the Attorney General of Australia and many other politicians in positions of power who aren't lying but are just misinformed. And so I'm kind of interested in this relationship between what you regard as a lie and what is just outdated belief system. So these systems never work the way they say they work. 
when you are a fiat currency issuing government, they never reuse that money regardless. Mm. One of the things that that I find fascinating is a interaction that Stephanie Kelton frequently brings up when describing the do they really know story. Okay. And there was an exchange between Paul Ryan, who was then at the time the head of the House Budget Committee, and Alan Greenspan, who is the ultimate neoliberal in the U.S. He was the Fed chair under several presidents. And um, Paul Ryan tried to put him on the spot and say, don't you think that we should privatize Social Security to make sure it's not insolvent? And Greenspan, in front of everyone, said, well, actually, there's nothing about Social Security that's insolvent at all. There's nothing to prevent the government from spending as much money as it wants to create as much money as it wants. The real question is, can we create an economy with the real goods and services available? Do you believe that personal retirement accounts can help us achieve solvency for the system and make those future retiree benefits more secure? Well, I, I wouldn't say that the uh, pay-as-you-go benefits are insecure in the sense that uh, <clears throat> there's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants. There's nothing to prevent the federal government from creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. Creating as much money as it wants and paying it to somebody. The question is, how do you set up a system which assures that the real assets are created which those benefits are employed to purchase? So it's not a question of security. It's a question of the structure of a financial system which assures that the real resources, the real resources are created for retirement as distinct from the cash. The cash itself is nice to have, but uh, it's got to be in the context of the real resources, the real resources being created at the time those benefits are paid so that you can purchase real resources with the benefits, which of course are cash. Mm -hmm. in front of all of Congress, in front of the House Budget Committee, from the King neoliberal, from the Fed chief himself, directly to them, not in a dark, smoky room, telling them in spades on television right there. You do need to tell it to people a few times for it to sink in, though. I'm sure it just washed over a lot of people. Yeah, there's layers of this, right? Mm. So you, you go to the top and you say to yourself, okay, I, I assume everybody just doesn't know. I, I start with that the way I talk. I, I present it that way. However, I have gotten to a point with talking with various individuals that work with central bankers and work with other economists and so forth, and they know the truth. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll tell you flat out, yeah, that may be the right answer, but it's hard to say that publicly. Mm. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. It takes some courage. So it's not knowledge you lack, it's, it's courage. 
It takes some courage. Why do you think it takes that courage? Is it they're scared of looking ridiculous, aren't they? You know, I, I, I think each person's probably got their own rationale. You know, I, I spoke to someone who is um, not within the direct MMT community. Her name is Clara Matei, and she wrote a brilliant book called The Capital Order and how economists invented austerity. Austerity meaning that um, the government is spending less spending less into the economy, and so we get less services. It's spending less, it's taxing more, it's increasing the cost of credit, and it's laying people off by creating unemployment through the NARU. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of these tools that they use, and we all just assume, hey, yeah, that's, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, this all came after World War I. After the Bolsheviks revolted in Russia, the rest of the capitalist world kind of got really scared. They really felt like, oh my goodness, the workers are going to take over. So they had to do something to snap that power back. Mm -hmm. And they really went overkill with it and really brought in the austerity through the increased interest rates, through uh, firing power to lay people off, and also to reduce fiscal expenditures to prevent people from having options. Mm. This was a three-pronged attack. Austerity has been around in many different forms for a long time, but it was codified. And then they had to have a story to justify all that. That's right. And so I've, I've kind of taken from that history and understanding that they were scared. They were reacting to people found out, hey, we can do nice things for each other. We can do okay ourselves. And the shock value for the capitalist class was almost too much. Mm. And so that revolt, if you will, the capitalist revolt brought about FDR in the United States. And FDR kind of split the middle. It wasn't a great thing. He left a lot of black and brown people out, but it was the closest thing we've had to a kind of an MMT lens even. Mm -hmm. But even there, FDR played on some bad tropes, like with our social security system in the United States. Um, He made people believe that there was this trust fund they were depositing their money into. Now people are holding on for dear life to that idea. Mm. And it has allowed many, many other secondary lies. Mm. And um, media has been consolidated down to three or four different platforms with very few uh, ways of getting media that's not controlled by very, very wealthy people. Mm-hmm. All this goes to say that everybody's got their own reasons for not telling the truth, so to speak, mm-hmm. or coddling up to the people that are in power that say these things. Either way, there's a, there's a natural affinity to go where the power lies. You're with Ann and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. 
please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Stephen was mentioning this thing called neoclassical economics. And of course, this is the brand of economics that shores up neoliberalism by using lots of really bad theories. Of which you have an extensive list. Uh, <laughs> if you listen to the outro on our show, uh, Anne will try and list them all. And, and, and I'm here to save you from that very long list. <laughs> but those theories, they use their theories, which are full of these mathematical formulas, to say, for example, everybody earns what they're worth. Yeah, and, and that if people aren't working, that's a choice that they make. They choose leisure over income, you know, as, as if being forced into unemployment is a choice. Right. So if you feed crap into your equation, <laughs> you're going to end up with a pretty lousy result. Well, it's a result that suits some people, which I think is why these bad theories have such staying power. Because if you believe everyone earns what they're worth, then you just don't need unions, do you? No. You know, and if somebody's earning... $500,000 a year, mm-hmm. uh, it must be because they work uh, so much harder than somebody who's a forklift driver. worth it. Yeah. <laughs> just to bring it back personally to you, Stephen, I was just wondering what keeps you motivated as an activist? Like, how do you avoid the burnout? And I'm asking this because... A lot of people that would be interested in MMT would want to apply it somehow. You know, it's a challenge, right? There's been many times where, you know, when the camera's off and the mic is quiet, where I'm throwing a hat across the room and I'm cursing myself in the mirror and crying, you know, upset, angry, frustrated. And there are times where I want to quit. And self-care is a real thing. You really do need to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very challenging world where you're always the one telling someone something they didn't know. And now you've got to deal with the unpacking of that. Mm. And um, that should not be done lightly. And there are times when you are burned out, when you are crisp and you need to recharge the batteries mm-hmm. and you still go out there anyway and you you lose your temper. You, <laughs> But one of the things that I've, I've found challenging for me anyway is that I've never ever followed anyone per se. You know, I I follow concepts, but after a little while, I start making up my own analogies. I start coming up with my own personal experiences and stories to convey different things. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you know, a lot of the people in the MMT community in the United States are seen as very favorable within the Democratic Party, making progress in whatever fashion they may be making it in. But a lot of the leftists in our country see that and they don't respect the Democratic Party. So they don't hear anything about MMT. They only hear, oh, that must be a democratic ruse. We don't want to hear any of that nonsense. Mm. So being able to decouple MMT from being seen as a Democratic Party, you know, psyop or whatever crazy nonsense <laughs> they come up with, it creates a challenge. Mm. And it creates a very big challenge because there's a lot of uh, stories out there that they're being told too, even now, like crazy stories, stories that stem from like libertarian thinking and Austrian economics and gold bug logic and on and on and on. So you're constantly trapped in a, a situation where you're the one percenter in terms of bringing this knowledge to the table. Mm. And that can be really, really taxing. No pun intended. That can really be taxing. 
So my recommendation for anybody that does this is get yourself to a good point where you're reading, you're learning, you're constantly having an answer for the hope that lies within and know where your resources are, know where to find whatever it is you need to find, build relationships. Don't do this alone. It's not a solo project. You know, one of the reasons that I really wanted to speak with you as we start out here as Radio MMT, and it might seem a little bit odd that we haven't gone straight to The Economist, we've gone to a fellow audio producer. But the reason um, that I wanted to do that was I was wondering from your perspective there, having been at this for so many years, is I wanted to give both our Melbourne listeners and our lovely Larry and Larissa's who are all over Australia a sense that they are really part of a larger worldwide, what I call the MMT community. Yes. And so I was wondering if you could give us your sense of how that community looks now, how it's growing. Well, I will say this, um, you know, I don't speak for the MMT community. I only speak for myself. So my ideas here, you know, each group has a different story to talk about. Mm. The legal group from Modern Money Network, those guys are talking to lawyers, they're talking to people that are in government. So in their world, they've got a different audience with a different language, with a different purpose. And at the voter level is where we play, right? Mm -hmm. But I would say the MMT movement is kind of going through a metamorphosis right now. And Rowan Gray said this recently. He said, you know, we kind of were all like one solid fist with the deficit myth. Mm -hmm. He says, we didn't quite pull that off with inflation. Mm -hmm. We didn't quite have a good solid core to attack inflation. And you can feel that if you really are on the front lines out there doing this stuff, especially the Twitter sphere and stuff like that, we maybe had the right answers, but we didn't articulate it well. We didn't have a coherent handoff. There was a lot of, I'm over here, you're over there, and there the two shall meet. Mm. So this is a growing pain for MMT, if you will, is that people are starting to move off into their own factions and stuff. And mm -hmm. There's pain with that, but that's okay. I'm so pleased to hear that at least MMT is big enough to have factions. <laughs> yes. Now, I've just come back from a weekend where I catch up with a group of uh, old mates. We've been doing it for 30 years. Uh, my mates are conservative. That's, uh, that's their background, etc. And I talk about MMT. Uh, the statement that's always made is if you just print money, isn't that inflationary? Doesn't that devalue your dollar? It comes up time and time again. And... It's a challenge for MMT to uh, overcome that very simple uh, perception. But I think it's a challenge that uh, might help focus MMT to address that issue. Yeah. As you said, has been done with, with the deficit myth. We seem to have got the deficit out of the way. Uh, I think it's good that uh, this is presented as a problem the whole time because maybe it will help focus our response. Yep. You know, one of the things that made the inflation story stick with me you know, Warren doesn't use these terms, but Randy does. And he talks about stocks and flows. So money is a stock. So if I sit there in a stack of dollars up to the ceiling, did that create inflation? I challenge you to show me how a stack of paper created inflation. It's the spending that could create the inflation and not necessarily just for the sake of, hey, I've spent money. So now we have inflation. We saw it during the pandemic. Everybody wanted toilet paper and mm -hmm. right, they didn't have whatever it took in that production, which is the real resources. Mm -hmm. And so that's one angle on the inflation story. Mm. Then there's the other one. And that is that government, when it pays higher prices, creates inflation. Mm. Government is the monopoly issuer. Government is the price setter and government can create inflation. There's that too. 
Then there's the other one, which is when government chooses to pay higher interest on debt, that they create inflation there as well. It's an inflationary pressure, too. That wouldn't involve some central banks at the moment, would it? <laughs> yeah, actually it would. But it, it's just fascinating, though, to think about the telegraphing of, hey, we're going to spend money on the people. We've given them $1,200 checks. And in the CEO's office, in the boardrooms, they say, hey, there's extra money there. We need to find a way to get a piece of that pie. And so all of a sudden you could see these crazy 800% profit, 1,000% profit during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot of words. And for somebody that doesn't really care about this stuff that much to try and say, yeah. they're already flipping the channel. <laughs> already somewhere else, you know? Well, we just had Stephen's elevator speech about inflation. <laughs> <laughs> So the United States political economy has produced a rather unique item known as the debt ceiling. <laughs> Could you just explain for us what a debt ceiling is and what the MMT perspective might be on that? The debt ceiling basically relitigates already committed spending. Right. The government has already spent it. It's already been approved by law. And they set a, a limit, a debt limit. We're not going to go over this number, period. They're saying we're not going to spend more than a certain amount of dollars in the budget. Right. Like, here's the budget. Here's the debt ceiling. If we get to the debt ceiling, we've got to do something. We've got to either raise taxes. We've got to cut a spending plan. We've got to do something or we're not going to pay our bills. In the United States, we got other amendments that take care of this and say, you got to pay your bills, period. <laughs> okay. you, you, the, you, we are required by law, by the Constitution to pay our bills. Mm. And part of the problem is, is that we have things like automatic stabilizers in the economy that automatically kick in, create new spending based on certain conditions. I think of automatic stabilizers as like spending that's not discretionary by whoever's the politician at the time. That's right. But it's still new money, right? It's still new money being spent into the economy. So it's impossible just based on, hey, these are the things we budgeted for. Mm. So this isn't like authorizing new spending, this is for spending that's already been authorized. That's the thing with the debt ceiling. Mm. So in the MMT community, guys like Ron Gray and others have championed what feels like a gimmick. Uh, it's not really a gimmick. And it, it is minting a trillion dollar coin, trillion dollar platinum coin. <laughs> you know, obviously the humor of it all is maybe make the coin the size of a pinhead or either that or make it like the size of a school bus and roll it down the street. <laughs> like a wagon wheel coming at you. Whatever, right? <laughs> and just make it as absurd as possible to show you how ridiculous this is. Mm. So ultimately, every year, the two sides, depends on who's in power, try to bluff the other into concessions for cutting whatever pet project they don't like and then the two battle and then they they vote eventually to raise the debt ceiling and we're done with and mm -hmm. it goes into the next year these debt ceilings are rolling debt ceilings. they're annual things they're not like a, a forever thing right but just on the the debt ceiling concept itself is, is this a very neoliberal concept that constrains government spending and says the government can't become involved in the economy any more than this point I, you know I think this goes back to gold standard logic. This is the era of yesterday. They wanted to make sure you weren't devaluing their currency. You weren't devaluing uh, their savings and stuff. I mean, hey, it's a noble thing, right? But that was always an arbitrary 
number. It was an, always an arbitrary relationship that could and was changed many times. It's an anachronism from times past. Now it's just a political game, just an opportunity for the out-of-power party to hold the others hostage. And that's really all it's become. Within that framework, has it ever been considered by either party to maybe cut uh, spending on military and defense to fund some of that? Yeah. <laughs> just thought I'd ask. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Interesting you say that. You know, one of the most important things about the psychology of the spending, think about this. In the U.S., we have this whole flag waving and that I'm sure other countries do too, but we really have it rough with that one. Okay. The Yankee doodle went to town kind of thing. When you think about, you know, war, war is the one thing that always seems to have bipartisan support to get money into the economy. And if you are an MMT or you understand that the fountainhead of that money is the federal government spending it into existence. So if you know that you're going to hit a downturn in the economy and somehow or another you've got to get money moving and you know the other side's going to complain when you say well let's give health care why don't we go ahead and give free college or stuff that you guys probably take for granted but over here nobody's taking care of our teeth nobody's taking care of our heart attack nobody's taking care of us at all yeah we we fall on hard times we're in the streets Brutal. it's it's a rough world we live in a libertarian hellscape in the united <laughs> states Yep. So this construct of military spending is the stealth way that they keep the economy afloat through military Keynesianism. Mm. And so a lot of the understanding of, of military spending comes from that cozy relationship with these big military industrial complex when it's spent to Halliburton, it's spent to Boeing, it's spent to whoever. And, and so it's a feature not a bug. It's a feature of the United States government, in my opinion. Yeah, I've often thought of the Department of Veteran Affairs being the bastion of socialism in the US. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au So Stephen was also mentioning this thing called the gold standard. And we could do a whole show on the gold standard. In fact, I think we did once yeah, <laughs> in yeah. a past life. Very briefly, it's another way of limiting how much the federal government can spend. So even though, for example, the Australian federal government can never run out of dollars, if the Australian government is on a gold standard, then what it's doing is it's promising to peg the value of our currency to the value of gold. And when you're trying to keep that promise, even if the government wants to spend, so even if there's unemployment and they want to employ people, or even if there's something they want to do like um, get to 100% renewables, if you're on a gold standard, you can't do that because your spending is limited. And I won't go into the mechanism of that. But of course, gold standards do tend to break down when there's a crisis like a war, which yeah. is what happened when Richard Nixon took America off the gold standard. And, and it was kind of like letting go of this idea that, no, you don't need to actually have a, a, a piece of wealth that's measured by weight in right. your pocket to use as a system of exchange. You don't have to back up the value of money by digging something out of the ground. Yeah, and I remember there were round 50-cent pieces before they brought in the hex-shaped one mm -hmm. that had a silver content in them, 
that was greater in value than 50 cents. And so <laughs> those 50 cent pieces then became uh, stored as silver uh, and, and people would collect them. Right. And then you end up losing your uh, coinage. It all starts disappearing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so until 1983, we had this huge stock of gold in Fort Knox by the, the US government to back the Australian dollar, <laughs> which is another thing Howard sold or something. But uh, yeah. Our gold standards are hilarious because they go to all this trouble to dig it out of the ground and then they put it back in another hole again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's um, have another listen to our conversation with Stephen Grumbine. Uh, when a government's in crisis, such as war, it will produce currency to uh, meet the requirements of that crisis. Do you think there's any chance that the US or Australia, the Western world will regard climate change in the same way as it would regard a war as a crisis that needs addressing as has been done in the past. You know, um, all my bucks are on that. <laughs> all my hope is on that. Yeah. Um, but do I believe it? No, I, unfortunately I don't because with military, you get immediate bang for your buck, no pun intended. With climate crisis, you're punting down the road for something that you may not see it's very hard to tie something together that doesn't give you an immediate gratification. Mm. You even look at the lithium shortages and the concept of everybody having an electric car and knowing full well that we don't have the, the real resources to do something like that, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's not really a viable position, but it's a neoliberal feel-good position to put forward, hey, electric cars, everybody, instead of public transport, right? Mm. Because of the rugged individualism baked into conservative America. Mm. But you look at this and you say to yourself, we've got a lot of battles to fight. Mm. Like, imagine we're at a party and in order for you to get a little tipsy, you got to crack open your beer. All MMT is at this point is cracking open the beer. That's it. MMT is just cracking open the beer. And now I'm imagining a room full of people who don't believe beer exists. And, and that's the job now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You've got to work the political economy. You've got to understand the rules and regs. Mm. So much of what we see in society today is puppet governments. So, for example, in the U.S., you might have an 80% want for Medicare for all. Mm. Impossibly high. And yet, Joe Biden, the savior, comes in and says, uh, no, no Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. And then you have Nancy Pelosi literally mocking the Green New Deal. These are Democrats. They are distancing themselves because they want to be the fiscally conservative Republicans and they want to make the Republicans go full lunatic fringe, which they're becoming. Mm -hmm. And you end up with the same exact basket of garbage. You end up at war with people suffering. You end up with police in militarized gear, quelling uprisings from people that are starving, that are hungry, that are homeless, that are desperate. And this is the conservative ideology that reigns supreme in the United States, and we see it around the world. So MMT's got quite a challenge to overcome when you look at who holds the power to make those decisions. Whenever you have a war, World War One, World War Two, and you have to rally the troops and get people to sign up, etc., uh, people throw their, their lot behind the cause and they'll do anything. They'll leave their country and go overseas and do all these drastic things. They'll shoot other people and everything changes because they're behind the cause because it's for the good of the nation. Mm -hmm. And we have 
pretty much exactly the same dynamic happening with climate change. In fact, the whole world could unite to say that we need to fight this impending doom. We've got to put our shoulder to the wheel and 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 it's not going to happen because it's not as dramatic as war. It's not as dramatic as a bomb going off in in Kiev. Public opinion is is a malleable thing. <laughs> so uh, climate change, it's happening gradually. Mm. Uh, food security is becoming disrupted. Water supplies are becoming disrupted. Crops failing and floods and fires and all that sort of stuff. Mm. That should be a, a call to unite and fight this scourge. But what's more likely to happen is short supply means that uh, you'll have inflation, which means you'll have division. You'll have people scrambling for resources. Well, it can go either way, can't it? It can go the toilet paper way or it can go we're all in yeah, it together. Yeah, I reckon it's going to go the toilet paper way. <laughs> I, I, only, only because if you have a look at human history, what happens when there's short supply? They start fighting each other. And and this should be an occasion to unite as a world, like which has never happened before. Mm. But it, it seems that the catastrophe needs to smack you in the face before there's a proper unified reaction. And that's the problem here. The thing we know, though, of course, is that the federal government could start yesterday to to be funding the things that we need to do. So why don't they, you know? And and, and they don't because we have short-sighted orthodoxy. Um, there's too much power with people with short-sighted greed, and, and that's, that's what causes the problem. So in this uh, last piece from our conversation with Stephen, we will be talking about our favourite thing, balanced budgets. And I thought I would just recap, what is a balanced budget? And what is the MMT understanding of a balanced budget? Once again, we're talking about the federal government. And every year they make a statement of what they're going to spend and what their revenue is going to be in the form of taxes. And we can still use that word revenue, apparently, Kevin, because it just means return of money, <laughs> which is what's happening. Okay, so and, and they think that they need to return as much money through taxation as they output through spending to have a balanced budget. Right, so if the government taxes less than it spends, then that's called a budget deficit. And if a government taxes more than it spends, that's called a budget surplus. And if the government taxes pretty much the same as it spends, that's the balanced budget. Yeah. Now, aiming for a balanced budget is yet another way of forcing the government to spend less. Basically, a balanced budget was a way to constrain uh, government spending. It said that you can't spend any more than you receive in taxation, mm. which is uh, that would be fine if you didn't have inflation or you didn't have population expansion. But if you have an expanding economy, mm. you need more currency to input into that economy. So a balanced budget is yet another technique of that austerity that Stephen was talking about. So let's have a listen to this next part of our conversation. So I noticed that as of 2019, speaking of libertarians, uh, they have in place 28 of the 34 state votes, as in states as in Pennsylvania and so on, needed to call a constitutional convention to change the constitution. And I could see Stephen nodding at this one, so I'll just tell Australians what's been going on. So they've been at it since the 1980s and they have spent decades and millions of dollars taking over the Republican Party in order to take over the state legislatures so they can get these 34 votes 
to propose an amendment. And what do you suppose this amendment is? It is requiring the US budget to be balanced under most circumstances. Yep. Now, it must be pretty important to the libertarians that they've gone to all this trouble, Stephen. (laughs) The whole concept of a uh, constitutional convention you would think the Democrats would be fighting tooth and nail against allowing that to happen, but alas, they are typically patsies for the Republican Party. Mm. There's a group called the Pete Peterson Foundation in the United States. It's a big one, man. And it's all about fix the debt. Oh, wow. You've got Nancy Pelosi from the Democrats and you've got a bunch of Republicans there too. Oh, no. The whole gang of oligarchs is there. Every last one of these billionaire politicians is with the Pete Peterson Foundation. Those people are paid big bucks to figure out how to make you and I not be able to make any headway on making sure what people know what the national debt even is or what a nation's debt is. So when you think about you are literally up against the most powerful, most wealthy, most connected, have the best tools, have the smartest minds all on the clock, not volunteering on the clock Mm -hmm. to kick our booties. Okay. And so the mountain that we're fighting to save ourselves to speak to climate crisis Mm -hmm. is huge. But then you take it to the Constitutional Convention. All of the people at the Pete Peterson Foundation would love a Constitutional Convention. That's Democrats. That's Republicans. Because they do want a balanced budget. Because a balanced budget favors the rich. It favors the oligarchs. It allows a perfectly passable reason for saying, I'm so sorry, we can't afford that. Mm. It immediately builds in the elimination of the entire public purpose of the government. So that's what's at stake here. Yep. It's worse than that, though. Let me tell you why it's even worse. Okay. Well meaning lefties, well meaning people that are independent, well meaning people that have no political affiliation whatsoever, but don't understand. They are literally championing. A constitutional convention as well. Ooh, yep, yep, that hurts. There's there's a thing called Wolfpack in the United States, and it's one of these groups that thinks that we're going to go ahead and be able to get money out of politics by calling a constitutional convention. They're sure they're going to do it. They have no concept of what the other guys have been doing, and the other guys are sitting there going, "Oh my God, are, are they really going?" Don't don't get in their way. Let them do it. Oh my goodness! Let these lefties do it. They're, they're hoping we're dumb enough to do it. It's like kicking an own goal, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Is <laughs> that is exactly what it is, and it's an own goal for sure. Um, so that constitutional convention. The problem is there's not nearly enough people aware, not only of the potential for what could come out of it, but. Why opening up a con-con, which has never been done before, and has very little rules, by the way. Mm. It's a wide open thing. So who knows what would come out of it? On one hand, you could certainly say, sure, I'm sure everybody would do something good with it. Because that's what I think the naivety says. Yes. But they are not sitting there with plastic silverware. They're sitting there (laughs) with sharpened sous chef knives. I mean, they're ready to go. (laughs) To slice up the economy. Mm Mm-hmm. The silence of the lambs, baby. I mean, that's what it's like. The, the lambs are coming in for slaughter. Well, I hope everyone is suitably scared now. <laughs> and this is what the MMT lens does for you. Helps you to appreciate where the real issues and the real problems are coming from. That's right. So I'm a bit lost with some of that stuff, Anne. Run, run me through what, what... So what we're talking about 
is a huge movement in America to change their constitution in order to require the government to have a balanced budget. So if you think about what the implications are of having a balanced budget, what you're saying is that no matter how many things the government wants to do, for example, in Australia that could be preserved the last of our unique ecosystems that are all on the verge of collapse, no matter how many skilled people you have in the country ready and willing to do that, no matter how many resources you have available to do that, you're going to have to say, I'm sorry we can't because we've just reached the limit of the number of dollars spent being equal to the number of dollars taxed. So, so this is even worse than the um, the debt ceiling that they have over there. It's a similar thing. Yeah, so it's a constraint on government spending, which is straight down the neoliberal line. This, this is what balanced budgets are all about. And yet we have Democrats and people who think they're progressive mm-hmm. jumping in behind this movement. It's insanity. It, <laughs> it, that's, that's suicidal. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing with a balanced budget as well as limiting what the government can do by limiting how much it can spend, the effect that you often have is that because people are no longer getting the currency to do things, you're forcing your population to use bank credit. You're forcing more people to take out bigger loans. You're forcing them to use their credit cards. And more and more people go in debt to the banks, which means the economy will become more fragile because more people will be less able to pay back those debts. So you're quite likely to end up in a recession or a depression, as did happen in the 1930s with the Great Depression. Yeah, even going back to the, um, the, the GFC. If you have people in the States who own property and they are heavy with private debt, the, the bottom falls out. So what would happen if you put that into the Constitution is effectively you're putting up a wall between the public purse and the democratic decision-making. So you're completely tying the hands of government and it would actually make you a bit of a monetary basket case, a little bit like the Eurozone. So what they're doing is they're taking their misinformation, their misunderstanding of the economy, their misunderstanding of they as currency issuers, what they can do, and they're deliberately putting a set of handcuffs on themselves. You know, one of the organisations that Stephen was mentioning that is championing this is this foundation called the Pete Peterson Foundation. So I went and did my in-depth Wikipedia research, Kevin. Excellent, yeah. And this is a foundation that Stephen was saying is putting out information that is the reverse of what you and I have just said. This is who your adversary is. Yeah. So Peter George Peterson actually died in 2018 of natural causes at his Manhattan apartment home at the ripe old age of 91. He was an American investment banker who served as the United States Secretary of Commerce under Richard Nixon. And along the way, he did a stint as the CEO of the Lehman Brothers. Right. But one of his claims to fame is that he co-founded the private equity firm, the Blackstone Group, which is now the largest investment management company in the world with total assets in 2022 of about US $951 billion. So they're close to a trillion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so he is also known as the founder and principal funder of the Peter G. Peterson Foundation. So he's not shy about naming things after himself. And the 
Peter G. Peterson Foundation is dedicated to promoting fiscal austerity. Essentially, he is the king of financial capitalism. He, yeah, yeah, well, he was um, until he... Um, until he passed away. Passed away. You know, I think of foundations like this as being a greater threat to the stability of the American economy than China. And in fact, if I was China, I would be donating <laughs> to the Peter G. Peterson <laughs> Foundation. <laughs> They have been doing this now since the 60s, the Milton Friedman Chicago School time period. Mm. Basically, the Southern strategy. I mean, they knew what they were up to. And then we come out with the Powell memo and they took over the local state houses. They took over local governments. They took over school boards. They took over the dog catcher. In America, elected positions are things like the school boards, like the sheriff. You actually get a voting form. Yes. This great big long voting form and you're voting for all these people. So that's what we're talking about, a libertarian takeover of these positions. That's right. They, they infiltrated the Republican Party and they went after judges and judges have been doing the work mm. outside of the elected arena to litigate basically laws and and criminalize behavior that we had hoped would never be criminalized i mean the reversal of roe v wade here recently in the united mm. states what took place was activist judges of the reich wing variety and yes i did use reich not right of the reich wing variety to literally take bodily autonomy away from women mm. ronald reagan dominated u.s politics in a way that had never been seen before it was so bad. The Democrats couldn't get either the House or the Senate. They were just constantly getting crushed. And so you saw Bill Clinton bring about what they call the third way, these new Democrats, and they were basically Republicans. They had stolen the Republican platform from them and decided to use triangulation to marginalize the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to literally silence them. And it was all because they had gotten their rumps kicked by Reagan. They had no real answer for that until Bubba, that was what we call Bill Clinton, but uh, Clinton brought around the first surplus, federal government surplus, and everybody heralded him for having a surplus. They heralded him. He's a hero. Yep. And uh, yep. this was a really big deal. Uh, there's a great article in Business Insider. Um, Stephanie Kelton is heavily quoted in it, by the way, it's how Bill Clinton's balanced budget destroyed the American economy. Mm. They're literally ending welfare for single moms. They're literally capping welfare at five years. This is a Democrat. This is the king of the Democrats reinventing government to make it more efficient for whom <laughs> Bill Clinton signing away glass Steagall, which kept away speculative investments in the banking community. It took away all the safety nets there. Uh -huh. Eventually, Bill Clinton gave us the Great Recession. Thank you, Bill. Yep, exactly. And this is Democrats. Let me say it again. This is the Democratic <laughs> Party. Okay. But Democrats have done more to hurt our country than it's unbelievable how bad they've been. It's very similar over here. A lot of people laud Paul Keating as being this fantastic uh, Labor leader. <laughs> uh, 
he was a, a soft L liberal. He was He's a small and neoliberal. <laughs> a neoliberal. He he was introducing a lot of stuff that the conservatives couldn't because they would be blasted out of there. But when somebody from the left does it, it seems more palatable. Mm. <laughs> it's it's unbelievably bad in this country right now. For example, Biden had a supermajority. He had both the House and the Senate, and obviously the White House, and he allowed the guy we call President Manchin, Joe Manchin, out of West Virginia, coal mining guy, coal mining oligarch, to basically dominate the discourse, to literally be the block on every possible piece of legislation. And his Build Back Better plan became Build Back Nothing, a fart in the wind, basically. <laughs> and to, to the credit of the MMT community, Massive amounts of deficit spending were done during the pandemic without asking how we're going to pay for it. Similar to Australia. Yep. Stephen, I want to thank you, not just for spending a very precious evening with Kevin I, but for all the work that you've been doing over the many years and personally for helping make MMT intelligible to me when I was first learning about it. So thank you so much for your time today, Stephen. Oh, you better believe it. Thank you both very much. Thanks very much, Steve. Very much appreciated. And uh, keep up the good work. And uh, hopefully more and more people will hear this message and understand it. Let's make sure we like and share these things. We are a small group, folks. If we're not liking and sharing stuff, we're never making it past the breakwaters. We're never getting out into the open sea. So definitely support MMTers trying to make a difference. Excellent. We'll see you on Facebook, Stephen. <laughs> Amen. I'll see you later. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev. Great program. Great guests. <laughs> if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by this huge amount of money and power that is saying the opposite message to us, Stephen was talking about starting small, like even if you just start with your collectivism online and he was talking about liking the things that you and I produce and the sorts of things he's producing. Yeah. You know, I got all inspired listening to him and I thought, oh, yes, I'm going to start doing more liking now. And I was thinking about, well, why don't I? Because I often listen to things or read things that I like, but I don't click the like button. Mm -hmm. Why don't I do this? And I, and I thought, I think of the likes as being for the people that might see that. But really, the like is for the algorithm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's for the computer. It's not for people. And I guess the thing like with me and social media is if I like something, then I'm going to get tagged for all this stuff and I'm going to start getting bombarded with other stuff that I don't don't like. But mm. but if you like us, you won't get bombarded with anything because we're, we're fringe dwellers. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I was thinking is I don't like doing a lot of likes because... I feel like if I do a whole lot of them, then people will start not taking my likes seriously. Uh, is that like when you, if you create uh, more dollars, the dollars become devalued? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking of my likes as like they really should be a scarce resource. <laughs> well, they're devaluable. You need to spread them around sparingly. Yeah. When you think about it, that's really not what likes are, are doing. So, so you should like our show. You should like all MMT stuff. You should like Steve Grumbine's show, Macro and Cheese. And you can even like the 3CR page on Facebook. Yeah.
do a lot of liking. And, and of course, Stephen Grumbine, you know, he's out there. He's organising and liking. Yeah, yeah. And how was that when he told us at the very beginning of his thing? He had like access to 35 million people in the States. That's mm. more than the whole population of Australia. Wow. That'd be, <laughs> like, like that would be fantastic. There's a few people who've heard of modern monetary theory, thanks to Stephen. Yeah. Well, Kevin, we just about run out of time here. Well, we better make room because we've got Mafalda coming up next with Vicky, uh, as per usual. So uh, until we meet again. <laughs> Indeed, Kevin. <laughs> we'll see you at 5.30pm on Friday the 14th of April. Excellent. See you then, Ant. See you then. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating the masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of like macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomics band. Like we could deliver this whole message by music. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.